This is Terms of Reference Podcast number 142. What we really are trying to do is look at what are some approaches that we can borrow from other sectors, for example, the private sector, where you would see commitments to concepts like research and design or prototyping. And that's really what we see ourselves as doing. So how do we create that as a mindset and how do we embody that in the way we do humanitarian response? This is Terms of Reference. I'm your host, Stephen Lenick. One reason that innovation has become one of those words that you just can't escape in social impact is the fact that the institutions that have occupied this space for the bulk of history are the antithesis of what we would consider shiny new objects. But really, if we sit back and think about it, for many, maybe most, or even all of them, the rapid or constant change that we associate with innovation is actually the exact opposite of what these institutions were built to achieve. Seriously, the public relies on public structures like governments and international organizations for setting and maintaining rules and processes that ultimately lead to a common, knowable, and stable environment in which we can run our lives. So in injecting the change associated with innovation into any system or process creates uncertainty, which is the opposite of what the institutionalization of something seeks to achieve. All of this is to say that it's no wonder that realizing innovation within this sector is a massive challenge, and one that fascinates me to no end. And I hope it does you too as well. Luckily, this is something that my guest for the 142nd Terms of Reference podcast knows a thing or two about. Corinne Gray is an alternative finance specialist in the innovation unit at UNHCR, where she leads efforts to engage staff and refugees in open innovation. I'm confident you're going to enjoy our conversation today about how UNHCR is working to develop an innovation mindset and how that ultimately makes a huge difference for refugees. I spoke with Corinne in Monterey. And now, before we get started, here's a quick shout-out from our sponsor. The Terms of Reference podcast is sponsored by International Solutions Group, helping to improve the social impact of governments, UN agencies, NGOs, and companies for more than 10 years. Visit ISG online at www.theisg.com. Hello, Corinne. Thank you so much for being on the Terms of Reference podcast today. Hi, Stephen. It's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. I know that you spend, well, you're a world traveler, like everyone on this show. You spend a lot of your time in Geneva. Do we find you in, in Geneva today, or where do we find you? You find me in Monterey, California, at the Middlebury Institute of International Studies at Monterey, where I'm doing a professional certificate in social impact investing. Social impact. Oh, nice. I love social impact investing. That's nice. And you and I, yeah. can, it's, it's harder for us to be in different parts of the universe. It's... It's my morning here in Bangkok, so you're you're looking at actually your early evening yesterday. So you know, exactly, I, I'm here to tell you the future's bright. Don't worry, it's fantastic. I was just going to say, what's going to happen tomorrow? <laughs> <laughs> you are the alternative finance specialist at the innovation unit at UNHCR, which, first of all, is a fantastic title. And you've been involved <laughs> in innovations and humanitarian aid for a while now. I'm excited to have this conversation with you. Why don't we start with? What is the innovation unit at UNHCR? What is it that you guys focus on? Why is it important? And specifically, what alternative finance are you looking at? Yeah, so the innovation unit is really something that we refer to as a service. So we're a service to the organization. We're fairly new. Some years ago, the previous uh, high commissioner 
really made a, a decision that as an organization, we would really incorporate innovation as part of our response to refugees and, and displaced people. What we really do essentially is we look at basically how can UNHCR do what it does better? We look at how can we increase efficiencies? What are some solutions that might be more creative, that might be more sustainable, more effective? And I think it's important to note that, you know, innovation is not about technology. A lot of people sort of see us as, oh, the tech people. I've, but, I've never, you know, been, never time- ever been guilty of conflagrating uh, technology and innovation. No one, okay, sorry about that. Uh (laughs) Yeah, so, I mean, a lot of times what we do is we just look for the best solution to a particular challenge, and that could be with or without tech. A big part of what we we see ourselves as doing is is really sort of driving a particular culture within the organization in terms of the way it approaches programs. We look at how we can really increase value of what we provide to our persons of concern, which are refugees, IDPs, stateless people, asylum seekers. And another thing that that we really do is really sort of take a future thinking approach. So in the humanitarian field, you would find that we really respond to things. Innovation service is more about helping the organization think about what are some future trends that might be happening and how can we prepare ourselves for that or how can we already start to begin researching and testing solutions um, for future trends. Um, Mm. We look at specific thematic areas. Uh, We look at energy. So how do we provide access to sustainable and renewable energy for persons of concern. We look at education, which is key when you consider that 50% of the refugee population is actually under the age of 18. So if you're talking about refugees, you have to be talking about education. We look at what we call communicating with communities, which is a term in the humanitarian field that really talks about creating feedback loops. So how can we get feedback from our persons of concern and how can that feedback actually directly feed into programmatic changes. Uh, We look at data, we look at connectivity, so basically ensuring that every refugee has access to the internet, whether through mobile technologies or your typical internet setup. And then, yeah, the newest thing that we're looking at is is financial inclusion. So looking at different ways that we can provide cash and provide services for refugees to not just receive cash from UNHCR, but to also send cash to their families because remittances are a big part of the economy um, for refugees. Uh, Another big part of what we do is, of course, staff training and capacity building because it's really important in thinking through innovation, that it's really more about adopting a particular organizational approach. So we we have a fellowship for, for UNHCR staff where they can spend a year learning about innovation processes and they can address a challenge that's specific to their operation. And then we work with them throughout the year, sort of like an incubator almost, where we help them bring those ideas to fruition. And then Another part of what we do is we we sort of run what you'd call a corporate innovation program, which is, you know, having an idea, man- idea management platform where we might launch challenges for, for staff to come up with new ideas around particular issues. You have just put such a gigantic menu on the on the 
table here. Yes. I'm not even sure where to start. No, that, it's it's fantastic that you. It's such a complete thought that it's. I'm I'm almost like wow. Well, thank you. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> so so let me let me start back. You started by saying that you're a service within UNHCR, which I think I want to first make that real quick distinction for people who are listening who might not understand that. In your mind, what does it mean? You know, why? What's the difference between a service within UNHCR and, and some other unit or some other thing? And then you also said how you want to embody this and, and, and incorporate this into UNHCR as you know, innovation as a concept, as a, as a culture. How cataclysmic is that in the UNHCR culture? We're in 2017 now. We just, you know, we just ticked over to 2017, and the reason why I ask that is, it's, it seems like a no-brainer. Of course, we want to be innovative, everything like that. So, but can you tell me, like, what does that take to to move a UN agency like UNHCR to that to that cultural mindset? Yeah, it definitely takes many touch points, but I would add that it's not that innovation is necessarily new to UNHCR. It's just that the term is something new and a decision was made to have a dedicated service. But if you sort of think of innovation and the core of what that word means, it's not that the organization has never innovated. You know, the organization, in terms of what it's actually done, um, responding to conflicts, having to come up with very quick solutions to very complex challenges, you know, it's very safe to argue that the organization has been innovative. What we really are trying to do is sort of look at what are some approaches that we can borrow from other sectors. For example, the private sector, where you would see commitments to concepts like research and design or prototyping, testing. And that's really what we see ourselves as doing. So how do we create that as a mindset and how do we embody that in the way we do humanitarian response. And that in itself really requires a lot of engagement mm. of staff. It's helping staff to understand conceptually exactly what does innovation mean. Because at the same time, you know, the very idea of having a particular section of the organization dedicated to innovation almost in a way sort of communicates that, oh, we're innovating and you aren't, which is why we, we think of ourselves as a service because we see innovation more as, as a tool and not an end goal in itself. And innovation for us is more about being adaptable. It's more about thinking of things from the challenge perspective first and thinking about the value that that, that makes and also be having agility to, to pivot when a particular solution might not be working, which in itself might be considered a bit new to the humanitarian sector if you sort of understand how the whole system works. So what it really does require is, is many touch points and a lot of engagement of staff it requires supporting operations and supporting divisions. So, you know, with around the organization, you know, lots of operations and divisions can identify challenges. And so we call ourselves a service because essentially they come to us and they approach us and we collaborate with them. And we basically figure out together with them some potential solutions to a particular challenge. And what we do differently is sort of look at, okay, are there solutions that already exist within the organization that your operation might not have tried? Or is there a solution that exists outside of our organization or even outside of our sector that, that we could possibly adopt? And then a lot of that is finding the right partners to, to do that as well. 
So that's why a big part of what we do involves, you know, the staff training and the fellowship, because we see that as being very key to, to helping people understand certain concepts within the innovation world. I want to ask you, Corinne, about how the unit is continuing to evolve. But before I do that, I want to take a second to talk to our audience and say, you know, you've been here for the past 10 or 15 minutes. And if you're finding value in this conversation, if this might inspire you in your work today, or it might help you in your professional path, or maybe it'll just, you know, be something that you consider for the future, please help us by sharing it with your friends. We're not here, you know, we're lucky enough to have sponsors. I'm not here asking you for money. But what I do ask is, can you give us a review on iTunes? Or maybe you could share this episode on Facebook or Twitter, uh, because it really does help get the word out, bring more people into the community so that we can really start having a bigger impact on how we help those in need. Thanks. Now, Corinne, could you see a time when, when this unit that you're in right now becomes obsolete and that's just sort of a core value that you would look for all of the staff for UNHCR and it's it's just something that it's a part of the DNA of the organization and so rather than having a unit or is this something where you find there's there's such value in having that service that sort of that beacon that people can turn to or, or raise a flag or, or you know come ask a question that you think that that's just you know for the foreseeable future that's there. Our end game is to be obsolete. I think that's one of the things I love the most about our unit and our approach and our strategy. You know, we, we sat down and we thought about how do we make ourselves unnecessary? And so that is very much a part of the, the approach. It's about helping people to, to understand that innovation in itself really should not be considered a separate activity. You know, when you think about an organization like Google, for example, I don't know that they necessarily have an innovation unit. What they do is innovative. You know, they provide structures for, for innovation and experimentation to happen. Well, we could say so that, us, you know, we, they're the, the, the moonshot labs, right? The Google X, right? Right. Or maybe you can exactly. call that There's, their... Exactly. And we, we also have labs as well. And, and that's where we sort of use that space to test. But what we really want to, to happen is that we're not needed, that our DNA as an organization is one that, you know, shifts a bit and adapts and is able to be agile and is able to rely on partners and build different collaborations and, and just come up with better, more efficient solutions. So, yes, we absolutely want to be obsolete. Let's get down to brass tacks, as they say. Um, can you give us one or two of your favorite examples of how you have either helped a unit or helped a program or, or, you know, in some way and just said, wow, you know, this is how you've been doing it. If we tweaked it this way or we tweaked it that way and it changes the, you know, makes it more efficient, more effective, you know, the the universe changes. Is there a a favorite outcome that you've had? I mean, there's lots to choose from, but I definitely say in terms of uh, our lab that, that looks at education, it's definitely one of the most mature labs, if not the most mature lab in that the lab works very closely with the education unit. In fact, the the structure of our labs is that they are co-owned. So it's one half funded by the innovation unit and one half funded by the relevant unit. So in the case of the lab that looks at education, we basically co-own this lab with the education unit. That's very important for us to do because when we say we're a service it means that our agenda is being driven by the organization's need. And so for the lab, what we've seen is that 
you know, once UNHCR really decided that, that education was going to be part of the first response, and by that I mean it was prioritized the same level as food and shelter. It wasn't thought of as a secondary need. It was thought of as something that needed to be dealt with as soon as refugees got into, you know, a camp or a community or a settlement. And what I've seen over the years with that lab is the mainstreaming of those solutions into the education unit, which really is sort of the end game, right? We want to provide that space where we start testing solutions first. And once those become verified, they become adopted into the general programming of the the relevant unit that handles that thematic area. So I would say definitely in the area of education, we've we've made some great strides. Um, We've had some great partnerships and some great products that basically look at how information communications technologies can assist in getting refugees access to education. Mm -hmm. I think one of my favorite projects of that lab is, is a consortium of connected learning because what we found was that in refugee communities, Primary education was pretty much well-delivered. Secondary education, you saw a drop-off. And in terms of tertiary education, it was very little. And so that lab really worked very hard in bringing together a lot of different partners and a lot of different institutions who were designing different solutions that refugees could access tertiary education through uh, what you call MOOCs and, you know, distance learning technologies. Um, And I'd say that that lab is quite mature because... You know, all of those projects are now very much mainstreamed and they're part of the education programming within UNHCR. I love it. Do you have a specific example? You know, you spoke specifically about borrowing from other sectors is in, and I know you're you're there in impact investing. That's what you're you're studying right now. But is there a particular solution that you borrowed from another sector or maybe something that's unexpected that you you maybe maybe feel like, wow, you know, that that's unusual that, that you could tell us about that um, you're finding success with with refugees? I think one definite solution that we've borrowed, and, and I guess this comes back to education as well, is um, Libraries Without Borders hired uh, world-renowned designer Philippe Stark to design a product that could provide communication and culture and connection with the outside world called the Ideas Box. So it's an entirely new product that was designed they came up with the idea to do this around the time of the Haiti earthquake. And then we formed a partnership with them because they wanted to really look at how this could be valuable in in refugee communities. So I think it's a great example of a product that really came from another organization that we were able to adapt to a refugee context. Another example is our work with World Reader, who provide, I mean, their whole aim is to get children reading local literature specifically um, through e-readers. Again, that was something that was a technology or a solution that was being used by another organization, but we were able to adopt that to the refugee context. And, you know, I think it's, it's very important to consider that you know, innovation does not mean that we're the ones out there creating all the solutions and the products. Mm-hmm. You know, it's really about understanding our comparative advantage and realizing that solutions out there are already out there and there are solutions that already exist. And it's more about finding the ones that might be best for that context and then learning how to adapt them. I want to take you into the future here for a few minutes. You said that you want the lab to be obsolete, or sorry, the, the unit to be obsolete. Um, you know, in the future, 
the question I want to ask is, are you satisfied with the arc that you're going on right now as a unit and you know, you're building these labs and, and capacity building and working across the organization? Or are there things that you're starting to tweak and change that you expect to see done differently in the next three or four years that will affect how you interact within UNHCR? Well, absolutely. Of course, there's, and that's, I mean, that's the whole nature of innovation, right? It's it's always reiterating, it's realizing that, you know, some solutions aren't final. It's about considering, well, wait a minute, how can we do this better? So yeah, there are lots of, of tweaks and changes. We've recently welcomed a new lead of our unit who was the former rep for UNHCR in Jordan. So we're talking about someone who is really running a massive operation at, you know, the height of the Syria crisis. And Mm -hmm. so with that, yeah. And so with that change in leadership and, and also the fact that UNHCR is, is uh, in the process of looking at, you know, new strategic direction for 2020. And so as a service, we're responding to that as well. So all of these are tweaks that we are doing in tandem with how the organization is is changing. You're in a special and unique place in that you have the privilege to kind of be looking out there you know, and seeing what's disrupting, what's potentially changing, or, or what could be used inside UNHCR. What, I'm wondering, are there particular disruptions or particular things that you have seen at your time in the innovation unit where you think, wow, this, this, it was just a total game changer? I'd have to say I'm yet to see something disruptive. I think we've been successful at a lot of incremental innovations, but I'm yet to see something disruptive. And and that's not just within UNHCR. I mean, just within the humanitarian innovation space, I'm yet to see something that has really, really changed the game. I've seen a lot of ideas that could potentially do it, but I'm, I'm yet to see something that has actually been implemented that has completely disrupted the system. Can you give me a, maybe a teaser on one or two of those ideas? Well, one of those ideas um, actually came out of a global design challenge that we did last year in collaboration with an organization called What Design Could Do and the IKEA Foundation, where we basically had this open invitation to designers of all disciplines to come up with lots of different solutions around solving particular refugee challenges. One of those ideas that I really love and I think has the potential to be a complete game changer is called the welcome card. This card is about creating digital identities, especially for asylum seekers. So you find that anyone in the process of of waiting to be granted refugee status has a very limited life style, as in they can't earn money. And that creates an existence where, first of all, they they feel like there's no control, but they, they don't have money to necessarily go out and see what their new city has to offer, for example. There is the sense of waiting to hear from, you know, the responsible body on the status of their application. And when we talk to a lot of refugees, they talk about, you know, the worst thing being waiting and not feeling like you're in control of your life. And what this card wants to do is basically serve multiple functions for for refugees. One, they should be able to, to use this card to get updates on their application status. It's also a form of identity um, while they're in the asylum-seeking phase. And it's also a form of remuneration, in a way, creatively. For example, 
if they can't earn money, is there a way for them to perhaps earn points on this card? And could those points then be used to access services, for example, transportation or access cultural spaces? So I find it to be really potentially disruptive in that it's really giving asylum seekers um, that control. It's finding ways that you can remunerate them in different ways without actually even using cash. And it's also a way of providing a form of a digital identity where they can now be included in, in the economy and the society. I love that one. It's just, I mean, it's it's both exciting and offers all of these different avenues, but at the same time, you know, it's one of those elephants. If you don't, if you don't eat it bit by bit, right? Like just the, the concept itself could be so overwhelming that they could come, exactly. to, come to a grinding halt, right? But, you know, as a concept, why stop at refugees? I mean, that's, it sounds like something. That exactly. Just, uh, and it, exactly. And, and that's why I say I, I've seen a lot of ideas that are potentially disruptive, but I'm yet to see something truly game changing come to fruition because, you know, for something like that, you need so many different moving parts. You need, first of all, the political will of a, of a municipality to want to try it. You need public transportation services to be able to read these cards. You'd need grocery stores, for example, to be able to accept points on these cards in exchange for buying goods, for example. So it requires so many different stakeholders to, to come together to make it happen. But you know, I feel like if something like this were to come to fruition, it could really, really change the game. Yeah, and I guess if I'm if I'm sort of trying to be objective and just sitting and thinking about it, a lot of those pieces are in place. If we you know, if we take that word refugee out of the context, point systems, you know, a digital card that you swipe, you know, to get to, to get value points or, or it recognizes you and you exchange value. For, like a lot of these things that you've mentioned already exist out there. I wonder right. if there's a way to then to just apply it to to the, the, the setting and the context that you have. That's, that's a great one. I like it. What's difficult about your job being in the unit? I mean, what's you have the enviable position of inculcating innovation with throughout UNHCR. What are your biggest challenges with that? Well, I think the biggest challenges is that we're innovating within a system that is not necessarily the best ecosystem for innovation. Understandably, the UN carries with it a lot of rules, bureaucracies, um, and these are all understandable in terms of the type of organization we are and where our funding comes from. So there are lots and lots of, of rules and rigid structures, you know, limitations in funding structures. Um, there's, you know, an aversion to risk and failure, which again is is understandable, you know, for a private company, a failure is just an impact on bottom line, but for a humanitarian organization, failure could point to actually harming lives. And yeah, lack of agility. So, you know, needing to innovate really needs an ecosystem that provides for agility and flexibility and quick pivots. It's not a structure that allows for that. It's understandable why certain bureaucracies and rules exist, but the hardest part for us is finding ways to innovate within a structure that does not necessarily allow for innovation to happen. How has the the policy, the directive, the you know the importance, the imperative that the that the leader of UNHCR has put out there, right? He they've said you know this is what we want to be. How has that affected? Has that a changed? 
the, that bureaucracy, that the systems and processes? I mean, have you felt a change with that with that imperative going forward right now? I feel an imperative for the change to happen, and mm-hmm. the leadership mm-hmm. of the organization has greatly prioritized innovation. When we look at the the strategy and the vision for the organization, innovation is peppered throughout, and so. We are grateful to have a high commissioner and a deputy high commissioner who see the value in innovation and who see the importance of making certain changes. So the imperative is there and you you feel an organization changing. You see an organization committed to changing in all different aspects from HR to how we look at financing and funding. So that imperative is there and it's exciting to feel that the leadership recognizes that and the leadership wants to change and the leadership recognizes that it truly needs to be a 21st century organization. And and that's definitely exciting. But of course, those changes don't happen overnight. But the will is there and that's what's really exciting. Mm. The, the question I want to ask, and I don't know if you'll have the answer to this, is sometimes we find innovation happens or, you know, it's almost like there's this bubble that's that's you know building within the organization and then either a fail happens and that that allows things to seep out and you know systems have to change or some other sort of event happens do you sense that that might be coming in sort of the universe that we have right now with migration and and, and refugees etc or is it the slow process the slow grind it's just a matter of you know these are large structures and they take time to move well, I think that that moment has happened. Um, if we reflect back on the last couple of years, we look at, you know, the Syria crisis, which really catapulted the issue of refugees into public discourse in a way that had never happened before. That really was that catalyst. And back in 2013, the, the former High Commissioner Guterres, who's now the Secretary General, he addressed the executive committee of UNHCR and said that innovation is absolutely going to be incorporated into our response strategy. So that impetus, I think, has happened already. I forget what the second part of your question was. <laughs> it's no, no worries. It was really, <laughs> yeah. you kind of answered the question just by saying, you know, you think yeah. that this event has happened. I mean, the second part was, or is it, or is it just a slow grind? But okay, great. Yeah, so, so there is an event that's happened and now we're seeing a sea change, right? Because on this podcast and in other places throughout the humanitarian world, not only yeah, is innovation that, a, um, almost an overused buzzword, buzzword, but it's also it's a recognized imperative across the across the sector. Exactly, and it, and it's a convergence of of a number of of events as well. So. Basically, what we saw happening was the number of refugees was increasing, and then we found that the amount of dollars was decreasing. And so innovation was really seen as being absolutely crucial for us to do business better, for us to do more with less, and also just the convergence of looking at, you know, different changes and realizing that on a whole, the world is changing, on a whole, technologies are are coming into play and understanding that we need to adapt and we need to move in step with all of these different changes or risk being irrelevant. Mm. Risk being irrelevant. I love it. How could UNHCR <laughs> possibly be irrelevant? Uh, that's, I know, we're not going to go there. We're not going to go there. But, um, but, but you know what I mean? Like our team motto is innovate or die, you know, and, and that's just the truth for, and then that, you know, that's the way private companies look at it. If, you, if you're not looking futuristically and you're not thinking about trends and how prepared you are for those trends, then yes, 
you Absolutely. Know, yeah. That if, is if, a risk. If someone can come up with, with solutions that, you know, that are not only better, faster, cheaper, but essentially higher value, right? Yeah, have better, exactly. That have, have better results than, than what UNHCR can achieve or any agency in, in the humanitarian sector. That's where the donor dollars will flow. A couple more questions, because I know your time is sensitive and so is our listeners. But you've told us about how you fund the innovation inside. You've told us about how this practice happens quite eloquently. How do you make sure that things become standard ops? How do you make sure that things become normalized? With, you know, so let's just say right now, you know, you're an alternative financial specialist. Cash is king right now in the discourse. Mm-hmm. How does that become a standard practice? Is there a process for that or is it just... You know, you dabble and you try, and, and when things work, you say, hmm, let's continue to do more. And, and is there a moment where, like, okay, this goes into every program and everything we do? Yeah, I think there's a couple of things. Like I said, the way we're structured and the reason we call ourselves a service is because we aren't creating a separate agenda. What we're doing is we're looking at what's important and what's crucial to the organization, and we're moving in step with that. And already starting off from that point addresses this issue of how does something become standardized, because we're already working on issue areas that are identified as priorities um, for the organization, and we're working collaboratively with divisions all the time on solutions together so that it's never an issue of, oh, we're off in a corner doing this thing by ourselves and then we're going to try to sell it to you to mainstream it in the organization. That will not work. So our very approach to the way we work already addresses that issue. But I think it's important to also, and this is something that has happened in the humanitarian space, you know, innovation has just become one of those new things and it's these new terms. But I think it's really important for us to to not even think about it as a separate activity altogether or or that it's something that's only just now happening. You know, we always have innovated. It's just that we haven't called it innovation and we just didn't have a unit that was dedicated to that. It's important to not think of innovation as an end in itself. You know, innovation is really more about a path to achieving particular outcomes or helping the organization achieving particular goals that it might have, either social or operational. So I think it's it's more about cultural and organizational shifts um, that would lead to, I guess, what you call standard operating procedure, and less about taking a, a pilot and then making that mainstream. It's it's more about how we structure and how we approach that and how we we choose our agenda, because our agenda is already based on a division who's decided they would like to do a different solution. And so once it works, then it already is their solution. Mm. I have two more questions for you. I ask them of every every guest here on the show during this innovation series. And the, the, the one question is, do you have people that you pay attention to? Um, are there blogs, podcasts, you know, Twitter feeds, magazines you read, anybody of note that you think other people should be paying attention to to uh, be a part of this innovation space? Oh, my gosh, there's tons. Um, I mean, for me particularly, just because I'm, I'm looking at, at finance and, and refugee entrepreneurship, I'm looking a lot into the social entrepreneurship space. I'm looking at Unreasonable Institute. I'm looking at African Entrepreneur Collective. In terms of what I read, I basically try to read everything. I think for us, again, it's important not to limit ourselves to the humanitarian space. So you'll find me reading Fast Company. You'd find me reading 
wired on this great platform called Product Hunt, where they're always, you know, shooting information about new things being developed. I'm looking at the Global Impact Investing Network. I'm looking at Stanford Social Innovation Review. I just try to keep a wide eye open in terms of of everything that's happening. Um, But more importantly, it's also just looking at what are the political and global trends that are happening, because I think that's more important than even knowing what the technology is out there. So it's more about understanding what is this space going to look like in two years? What are displacement trends going to look like in two years? Mm -hmm. Understanding certain political shifts, because I think that's most important to considering what are going to be the new challenges that we're going to have to be looking at addressing. The last question I have for you, you may or may not have an answer to this, is is there something outside your space, outside UNHCR, maybe refugees, that you think is super cool, awesome, that's going to affect the humanitarian world that you, you'd like to give a shout out to or just sort of give some, let people know about? Yeah, so my biggest sort of... I call them nonprofit crushes. <laughs> is um, it's kind of, you know we need to have that because you're not the first one. It's like I feel like there's a bromance. We needed like like yeah. is it an NGOmance? I don't know. I yeah. So um, last year I stumbled upon the work of MIT's D Lab. That D stands for Design Development, and basically this is an initiative within MIT that looks at how design can be used for you know solving complex challenges in vulnerable communities. Um, And they've got this great curriculum called Creative Capacity Building, where they basically work with very, very local and rural communities, and they actually train them in the design process, but they also train them in fabrication techniques. And they run this curriculum where basically at the end of five days, an entire community has come together. They've learned the design process. They've identified challenges facing their communities They've designed a prototype and they've built a first prototype in five days, added to that model. Yeah, it's, I mean, I'm just the biggest fan of it. In addition to that, they create innovator networks. So people who pass through the curriculum are now connected to one another and can knowledge share. Another part of the program is is setting up innovation centers in communities. So creating spaces within the communities where people can continue to build on some of these skills that they've learned. And what you see coming out of this is, is really the way I would like to see, you know, the aid and development space heading into less about us throwing products into communities and more about communities building things themselves you know for example you know one of the the stories I hear from from the founder of MIT D lab is she talks all the time about you know a colleague who was working in Haiti during the earthquake and she was talking about her frustration of waiting to get a shipment of solar lanterns for nine months and Amy Smith who's the founder was like why don't you just teach them how to make the lights themselves and she was like oh my gosh can you do that and, you know, I had the chance to, to do one of these trainings and to also become a trainer of trainers. And what I can tell you is there is something really transformative about being able to make something with your own hands. I experienced it as a participant in the course because I made a, um, a briquette press out of wood and metal. But there was just an amazing feeling that I had of, oh my gosh, I just made this thing with my hands. And there is something that speaks to 
dignity and the empowerment when a community does not have to wait on you to come and give them some products, but that they can actually walk around their community and identify a challenge and make a product. And, you know, especially with, with refugees, we just see over and over that they're communicating to us through design that the products that we're giving them aren't always fit for purpose. You know, I went to the Zachary camp in Jordan two years ago and you saw refugees basically remaking and redesigning everything that we gave to them. We saw UNHCR tents being made into to furniture and, and bicycles. And for example, cook stoves in the camps in Ethiopia, you see a lot of these donated cook stoves discarded. You talk to them and they say, well, it's not big enough to make injera. And so refugees are constantly communicating through design and redesign and remaking of things that the products that we're giving to them just aren't fit for purpose. And I can't think of anything more dignifying and more empowering than giving them the tools to make their own things. The excitement that you see on a woman's face when she makes a maize sheller out of sheet metal and realizes that she no longer has to pick the kernels of maize off the cob by hand, but she can now slip it through this thing that she just made in 20 minutes and realize that this has saved her maybe three hours for the day is truly transformative. And that's what I'm really excited about right now. Wow, I get, you know, usually that last question is like, you know, a little snippet and you just you just gave such a fantastic answer. I want to offer to you, I have not read it, but there's a book called Shop Class as Soulcraft. It's by a person named Crawford, mm-hmm. but it was recommended to me, but it's the same concept of being a maker is not only transformative, but it's it's kind of like Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, you know, that old old book where it's yeah it's this there is this power in being able to take control or or adapting what you have or 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 creating something that will solve a problem for yourself so let's offer that up to the people listening as well corinne i i can't thank you enough for this conversation it's been fantastic um i wish we had three hours but uh (laughs) uh, thank you so much for your time today and uh i wish all the best Absolutely. Thanks, Stephen. It was great chatting with you. You've been listening to the Terms of Reference podcast from aidpreneur.com. Subscribe to us on iTunes.